I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is psychotherapist Jane Greer, PhD, and author of Am I Lying to Myself? How to Overcome Denial and See the Truth. People employ denial because it makes their lives easier in the moment. It even makes their life appear to be better the way they'd like it to be, the way they wish it were, rather than what it actually is. It's important to recognize denial's sneaky voice and to talk back to it with clarity and strength. This means exploring what typically traps people in their misery, frustration, and disappointment with their relationships. Being honest with ourselves lets in the voice of reason that we must hear in order to have live a healthier emotional life. Dr. Jane Greer helps readers to squelch their tendency to let their own and others' denial rule their lives. She's a marriage and family therapist, psychotherapist, author, radio host, and creator of Shrink Wrap, the popular commentary on what we can learn from the trials and triumphs of not only celebrity, but all relationships. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jane Greer. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me. Great to have you. First question. So uh, what's in it for us to let denial rule our lives? Why do we do it? Why are we so scared to acknowledge our denial? Well, let's talk about love and romance. I call denial the Houdini of the heart. It makes all the pain, all the uncertainty, all the doubt, all the suspicion, all the fear that the relationship isn't going to work isn't going to be what you wish it would be, what you want it to be, it makes it disappear. And so even though you may be getting an uncomfortable feeling, if if it's somebody that you're dating that, hmm, he said he was going to call, but he never did, or if it's somebody that you're involved with that you think maybe is not being faithful, that they might be cheating, or it's somebody that you're living with and married to, and you've had this long-term relationship, and they have this one particular behavior which is problematic that they keep telling you they're going to change, but nothing happens. All of these are instances and areas where denial comes in full force and helps you navigate the discomfort of confronting the situation, confronting the person, and thereby necessitating probably a change. Maybe not continuing to date that guy because he's not going to be a good guy. He's not going to be available. Maybe not uh, continuing in that relationship where there's cheating going on or blowing it wide open and dealing with the fallout of cheating and infidelity. Or given a problem behavior, it might even be that, you know, you reach a point where you say, I love you, but I can't live with you if this continues. So denial cushions us, it insulates us from hard calls and hard changes. And deny, so it's a short-sighted solution, right? It's a quick fix. It's what they call, or we could call it a temporary Band-Aid, but it doesn't, we don't really, we don't end up really dealing with the issues and making, it also prevents us, is what you're saying in these relationships, of making good choices, right? We we, we kind of cut off the the choices that we may have uh, in those situations that you just described. Yeah, you know, denial is um, exactly what you were saying. It leads to avoidance. And you're able to tell yourself that, I, I call the, there are certain signs that tell you you're dealing with denial, that you are wishing and hoping an awful lot. 
that you are missing signs that are right in front of you, or you take a lot and turn it into a little. You say, ah, it wasn't so many times. It's not so bad. It could be worse. Or somebody says, you know, it's you're the reason that I was late, or you're the reason that this happened. So they blame you, make it your responsibility instead of taking responsibility themselves, and you believe it. So believe in what you're told by other people in, you know, it sort of fosters your own denial to go along with their view of reality rather than your own. And when you do that, you avoid having to really deal head on with the situation and the problem and again, make change because change entails loss. And you know what, Catherine, even change for the better, even when we change jobs to a new exciting job, even when people get engaged and there's a great change, it's very exciting, but it's very scary. And so people really go gently into change and avoid it if and when they can, because we all know our creature comforts and our comfort zones and are typically reluctant to move out of them. What about, okay, change involves loss and it involves letting go. Does it also involve risks that we're afraid to take a risk, maybe a small risk, a big risk, whatever it is, an emotional risk, or actually, well, let's take an example of uh, you're at a job that you really can't stand, and but still you do, you're into denial. It's not that bad. I earn a salary, but maybe you, uh, that's, you know, can support my family, but there's so many other things wrong with it, but it's too scary to say goodbye to this job and risk being able to get another one. Is that it? I think risk. Absolutely. Exactly. And by the way, that's not only with the job, that is with everything. If it's a relationship, it's well, can I really risk ending this relationship and finding another guy to date or to potentially get involved with? Or can I risk giving up this marriage and finding somebody else that would be a a lifetime partner? Exactly right. The, The fear of change and the risk that it entails keeps people stuck. In fact, I have another book called Courage to Change in Love, Work, and Life. And it's exactly this fear of change and fear of risk that keeps people gridlocked. Their anxiety, their fear, their um, anger at the situation. Sometimes I liken anger to being in a car and the car's in neutral and you flood the engine and you're just stuck. And I think when people just you know, get consumed with their anger at a situation, be the relationship is making them unhappy or their boss or colleague at work is making them angry. When they let their anger take over, they get stuck in it. And that's when denial pops into place. It's, well, it's not so bad. Maybe it was me. I can try harder. You know, I understand why they did that. And giving people a very long leash in terms of accepting unacceptable behavior. So how do we recognize denial in ourselves? How do we get to that point? How do we say, okay, I mean, is there, I mean, are there ways in which we can be on the alert, become more aware? I am in de- denial in well, all of these situations that you've described. So how do we recognize it? How do we know we're doing it? Well, the four signs that I was speaking about earlier are, are really the roadmap to your being in denial. Are you wishing and hoping a lot for whatever you're dealing with to change? Are you hoping that somebody is going to be who you want them to be and not seeing them 
for who they really are and what they're actually doing. Are you missing signs? Are you seeing things that are happening? I have a skill called read the small print. For example, if you're dating somebody and they say, all right, we'll go out Friday night and make no plans, have no reservations, you don't know where you're going, that tells you something in terms of, all right, maybe they were busy at work. Maybe they didn't have a chance to plan the occasion. But if that happens one time, and then they ask you, where would you like to go, and completely disregard that you say, I'd like to go out for a nice romantic dinner, and they take you to a casual diner. By the way, these are all things that have happened with my patients. I'm not making them up. And I say, read the small print. In and of itself, it looks like a very tiny detail. But when you put it together with all the other small print details, it becomes a big headline. And so missing the signs, wishing and hoping, as I said earlier, if people tell you it's your fault, if you start to become consumed with a lot of self-doubt, or you're blaming yourself, or you're feeling guilty that you're not being understanding enough, that you should be more accepting, that you should try harder. If there's a lot of that going on, you're believing what you're told by the other person who's making everything your fault and who's making their needs first and foremost without acknowledging or relating or considering your needs. And then my favorite, if you're turning a little into a lot, you know, maybe if you're dating somebody, he calls once a week but you say, but he's calling, or if he's texting every day, but you're not getting together, he's not calling or he's not making plans to see you, you say, yeah, but he's calling every day. I'm I'm in touch with him. You turn a little bit. You don't have anything really substantive in terms of connecting and getting to know each other more. You turn it into a lot. And then the flip of that is you take a lot, a lot of missed appointments or a lot of missed dates or If you're in a relationship, a lot of promises made that things are going to happen without the follow-through, a lot of words without the actions connecting and linking up, and you turn that into a little. It only happened once. He said he was sorry. She said she was going to stop spending so much money. He said he wouldn't drink every night. And so you take a lot, something that's happening all the time, and turn it into a little, it's not so bad. If you're well, and I want to stop you there because I think in examples and you're talking about, obviously, you said these are true stories. These are these are patients that you have or have had, uh, you know, in cases of domestic violence. That's really the extreme of that, of staying with somebody who is beating you up or abusing you. Well, but it's not so bad on, you know, it doesn't happen all the time. I mean, that I think that's a, a an example of, of what you're talking about. I, I also, I want to, that, okay, that's the person themselves. What about, and I have not just necessarily patients in the past, but friends. How about, let's talk about some of my friends I who, uh, uh, this, and you describe it as the stay stuck complainer. The girlfriend is always telling me that uh, this, this relationship uh, with this guy isn't working out or with my husband isn't working out. And they say the same thing over and doing it over and over. And how do you deal with that person without being a therapist, just as, you know, it can be a friend, a colleague. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody probably knows a stay stuck complainer, whether it's their friend or their mother or their father, brother, sister, the person who is just unhappy, 
Something is making them miserable. Something's always upsetting them, making them mad, making them angry. And they are always coming to you to vent and complain. And you step in. It's like doing, you know, a, um, a jig. You step in at doing the foxtrot, doing the jig, dancing as much as you can, trying to give them advice, help them, tell them what to do, be a good enough, whether it be a sister, spouse, friend, make their lives better. And when you hang up the phone, everything you say is, yeah, I tried that. No, but that's not going to work. And they just circle back to what's wrong and complaining. And you hang up the phone. They feel better because they've been venting for about an hour and you've got a headache and you're frustrated. (laughs) And that's true. You are now carrying the ball of despondence and helplessness and frustration and anger that they just threw into your court and you caught. So what do you do? Well, I say to people two things. First of all, you really need to not offer advice unless it is asked. Unless somebody says, what would you do? And even then, if if you've given them advice in the past and they haven't taken it, then I would encourage people to say, you know what? I don't really know. It sounds like you've got a really upsetting problem. I don't think I'm the person to talk to about an answer. Have you thought about talking to a therapist? Maybe, you know, that would help because I don't know really how to suggest what to do. Pull yourself out of it. And as far as the complaining goes, I tell people, you know, sometimes people will tell me they have a a parent who will go on for 45 minutes or an hour and they've got to listen and they're beside themselves at the end of the call or a friend. And I say, well, give them permission to complain, open the complaint bar, tell them that you are going to listen to their complaints every day, pick time and call them and say, you got 20 minutes, go ahead, tell me everything wrong. And then at the end of 20 minutes, hang up. What typically happens is the person who's complaining sometimes is able to step outside themselves and start to laugh and see what they're doing and accept it. If not, you're still saying, all right, bring it on and letting them know that you're hanging up after a certain point. The most crucial part of the boundary and the limit, however, if you're only going to listen to somebody, if you say, when you get on the phone beforehand, look, I've got a half an hour I can talk or I've got 20 minutes that I can talk to you. It's really essential when that 20 minutes is up that you hang up. And that does not mean getting the other person's permission to hang up. It means saying, I know, I wish I could keep talking to you. I have to go. They're going to keep talking because they want to continue to vent and bombard you with their complaints. But you've already told them, I have to go. And you're going to say, look, I know, I wish I could talk, but I have to go. Goodbye, and you hang up the phone. So you're setting the boundaries, and you and you make sure that when you establish the boundaries, you follow through, and you don't get get exactly. on stay on the phone and for another just, two hours and wake up ex- uh, and hang up, and you're the one who's exhausted and spent and <laughs> angry, right? Uh, I, and uh, yeah, and what about when it's your children? Let's take the parent-child situation, that relationship, and your you, and and your your child, and perhaps and maybe a teenager or even older. Uh, is into denial. And that's a much closer relationship. How does that, how does this work with, with that kind of a relationship when you're, you're, um, you're, I say child, either a, it can be a grown up child uh, is in denial. 
Well, it's a little trickier because if it's a if it's if you're if it's a, if it's a an adult child, you have to tread uh, water much more so than if you've got a teenager for whom you are still responsible for the choices that they're making and their behavior. If it's an adult child, you really have to learn to respect the differences, not be intrusive or invasive, not just freely offer your advice. I hear from a lot of parents, well, but I want to help them and I'm the mother and I want to be able to tell them what I think. And I say to everybody, yeah, but if they're not asking you for your opinion, don't offer it because it's not going to be met with welcome arms. It's going to be experienced as control. They're going to hear it as um, not respecting their choices or their preferences. And so I always say to people, if you want to give an opinion, ask. Are you interested in, in an opinion? Do you want to hear a perspective? Do you want to hear my take? And they will either say, yeah, then you're green-lighted. Then you can go ahead and tell somebody, tell your child, you know, I was thinking maybe you would try this or maybe you consider that. It's a suggestion. It's not telling them what to do, which they are going to resent. They're not going to listen to. And you're just going to have tension between you. Yeah. As you're, uh, and as you're describing it, that is a much more delicate situation, as you say, with your adult children than when you are responsible for your 18 or under or your teenage kids. And, and then you, that's, it's not quite the same, not quite the same thing. Okay. What about a spouse? Let's talk about a spouse. That's another relationship and, um, that you're very in, involved in close to, it's not just a friend or a colleague. And, um, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with their yeah, well, denial? That's a great question. That's the second part of my book. The first half is dealing <laughs> with our own denial and the expectations we have of ourselves to live up to other people's demands, needs, what they want of us, and, and the way we deny our own needs and blame ourselves and walk around feeling guilty and not good enough. But the back half is... What about when you're dealing with somebody, this day stuck complainer, a family member who doesn't believe COVID is real, doesn't think masks matter, or who has a, you know, a problem, a drinking problem, a gambling problem. Um, they're not following through on getting their resume done or making a change in the job. You really need to look at how much denial they're in. How long have you been talking to them about the situation and the problem? what kinds of steps or efforts they've actually made to change it thus far. And then you have to come to terms and deal with your denial around their denial. And that means you're not going to be the one who's going to help them see what's going on. Not going to happen. If somebody is drinking, you're not going to be the one who's going to get them to see that they're drinking too much or that they're spending too much money. You have to see that they're drinking too much and spending too much money. And then you have to change the way you handle yourself in relation to them and the behavior, which means setting limits, putting boundaries in place, making changes, but not trying to get them to change by seeing that they're in denial. It won't work. It doesn't work. If somebody is drinking too much, Try to get them to see that they're drinking too much. They'll only tell you, I'm fine and I can function and it's not a problem. If they're spending too much money, they'll say, I didn't spend that much. 
you know, that was last month, or the bill didn't come in. Whatever it is, they're in denial, so they're not going to see it. But if you see it, then you can say to them, look, you may not think you have a problem, but it's a problem for me. And if you're going to be drinking at night, I'm not going to spend time with you. I'm going to go upstairs and read a book. I'm not going to be involved with you. That That's one option. Or I'm not, you know, if, if you don't think it's a problem, but we're going to look at the bills and figure out how you can pay your bills and I'll pay some of the other bills because I can't pay those bills. They're too much for me. So you start to put limits and checks and balances in place around how you're going to be involved and engaged with them when this behavior is continuing. So you're going to be very specific about what you are going to do and what you're not going to do in relation to this problem. And as you say, debating with the person about how much you're drinking or how much money you're spending is it's a no-win situation. That's not going to Absolutely. work. Absolutely. Yeah. It's never going to work. I, I work with everybody around, you know, whether it's a parent who has these ridiculous expectations of them or it's a husband who, you know, is, is just continuing to be argumentative or explosive at different times. I work around getting people to see their own denials because that's what's empowering. Then they're equipped to start to deal with the other person. Then they, then they know what's, what's going on and they're able to, you know, to take steps and, and make changes and, and, and implement choices. So, you know, I say use what you know, see what's going on and use what you know. Address your distress. That's another skill. And wait to be asked with the stay stuck complainer. Stop offering to try and make their lives better. Not going to work. What about the situation where you have a adult child who's very much aware of the denial, perhaps that the one of, of, that their parent is, is uh, engaged in? And they want to address the situation with their parent because that's a different, that's not an equal relationship in the sense, you know, we've been talking about spouses or partners, but so how does that work? The adult child who wants to confront their parents' denial? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. It's the same (laughs) thing. That's exactly the situation. I can't tell you how many people want to tell their mother or their father, I'm such a good son or daughter. I, I call you every night or I, we, we take trips with you or you see your grandchildren or, you know, um, I invite you for dinners all the time, you know, listing all the things you do to be loving and caring. And all you get back is, if you cared about me, if you love me, you would. It's never enough. It's never good enough. No matter what you do, They'll, they will always ask for more. If you call once a day, they'll want you to call twice a day. If you invite them for Christmas, but you're, you share the holidays, they'll be upset that they're not there at Thanksgiving. If you, you, know, if you make plans to, to go for lunch, they'll be upset that you didn't talk to them you know, later that night on the phone for an hour. Their needs always prevail. They are unrelenting. You just never feel like you can be good enough. You never feel like you can please them. And you can't. (laughs) And that is what you have to accept, that they are going to be disappointed. And they are going to feel 
unloved at times, despite what you say or do. You have to have your own expectations of what it means to you to be a good enough son or daughter and what that entails you doing to feel that you're, that you're being caring and loving. And whether they can accept that and feel loved is on them, not you. So here again, we're talking and about they can boundaries. Be, they, have a, they have a right to be disappointed, but you don't have to make it. And not only don't you have to make it better, but you can't. So in this case, it's probably if the adult child is trying to do this, it's it, it, it probably is good for their mental health to get into counseling or therapy themselves. Uh, not Absolutely. Try, very often they're trying to get their parent or parents into therapy or counseling, but it, it behooves you to just take care of yourself in this situation. I keep mentioning boundaries because I think they're so critical and it seems to, I think that's what we are talking about, creating your own boundaries and sticking to them. Absolutely. Exactly. I have a lot of examples in my book, you know, where um, one of the one daughter, she went out of her way to make this fabulous birthday for her mother's, I think, 90th or 95th, and friends gathered and everything. And, and, and then at the end, it, instead of being appreciative and saying thank you, I mean, it, it was just peppered with all of her mother's, you know, um, delights. The mother said something disparaging. Yeah, but you didn't this. And she came and she was crestfallen. She said to me, I, I can't believe it. I, I got her friends together. I, I wrote a, a card. I bought her a present. We had a big cake. I made the cake special. And then she said, but you didn't do this. I, she said, I just, I don't understand it. I said, that's your mother. It will never be enough. And you need to see that and accept it so that you know what you did was terrific. And you really put together a beautiful birthday for her. That's a great story to end the interview with. Uh, there's a lot to learn from that story. There really is. And there's a lot, obviously, to learn more from your book, Am I Lying to Myself? How to Overcome Denial and See the Truth. And we've been talking to the author of that book, Dr. Jane Greer. So, Jane, give us a website and or websites to go to for more information about your book and about your work. Go to my website, drjanegreer.com. You can buy my book right there, Amazon's. Amazon, it, my book is right there. It takes you to Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound.org, and Roman and & Littlefield. So lots of ways to buy the book. It's available in um, Kindle, hardcover, and um, ready to go. And Audible. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great talking to you. Lots of good information. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Have a great day. You too. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 